This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! John Templeton. Buy low, sell high. Fear, that's the other guy's problem. And Dr. Miller. George Soros. Paul T. Jones. Peter Lynch. People wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500. Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. My guest for this episode is Simon Mikhailovich. Simon is the co-founder and manager of the Tocqueville Bullion Reserve. And in this conversation, we discuss everything from his experience growing up in the Soviet Union and emigrating at 19 years old to the end of this great debt super cycle, what it means for the prices of financial assets, and finally, how gold represents the ultimate insurance policy during this time of uncertainty. So uh, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Simon Mikhailovich. Simon, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jesse. Good to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to have an expert on the topic of gold to talk to. It's something I haven't done with a podcast yet, and I'm really eager to talk to you, you know, about that as as an issue specifically. But let's let's start at the beginning. Um, you have a a very interesting um, background. You grew up in the Soviet Union. I did. I did. I grew up in Leningrad, which is now Saint Petersburg. And uh, left uh, in 1978 when I was uh, 19 with my family. Um, they let us out with uh, $100 a piece and a suitcase of about, uh, not about, of precisely 20 kilos. And it wasn't the proverbial $100. It was actually $100 a piece because that's what the capital controls permitted you to exchange into hard currency from rubles. So uh, so that's how I ended up coming to the West with uh, $100, a suitcase, and then two grandmothers and two parents who didn't speak any English. Uh, right. And they had $400 with them and four suitcases. So that was – but probably bigger liability than an asset other than, of course, uh, you know, filial, uh, you know, family pleasures, but from a financial point of view. Anyway, so we came. I mean, we left because uh, – for you know, for a lot of obvious reasons, but also because concluded that um, – I mean, the system really didn't work. I mean, it was visible that it didn't work. In retrospect, that period of the 70s and 80s is now called uh, stagnation. But uh, at that time, of course, nobody knew that that's what it was, but that's what it felt like. And, uh, you know, given the corruption and, and, and what else was going on there, we just decided this, that there was no future. And so we, we left at a very high cost of leaving absolutely everything behind and also give, giving up citizenship that was a condition because you were a traitor for, for leaving the motherland so you had to renounce your citizenship and pay dearly for that too so we showed up in the west essentially as refugees with five hundred dollars between the five of us and uh and no and no citizenship of any kind no papers uh ended up in the united states yeah go ahead you were going to say something well yeah i was just going to say um you know, uh, obviously that that experience had a had an impact on you, and and the the capital controls on on your thinking about money and uh, and, and stuff these days. Um, but you use the term stagnation, and I just think of you know the the term secular stagnation has become really popular to describe developed economies today. Um, you know, you you saw that history, kind of the tail end of the the, the Soviet Union. And I, are there parallels um, to what you're seeing today in in the United States? Well, no, no, there's no question about it. I mean, that's why I ended up doing what I'm doing. I mean, I'll tell you the rest of my background, but there I see a lot of parallels. And of course, you can't compare. Uh, you know, like they say, history doesn't repeat itself; it rhymes. I mean, you can't compare the Soviet Union to the United States on almost any front. But in, in the trajectory and substance of a lot of things that I'm seeing, or lack of substance uh, in a lot of things that I'm seeing, where, where, in there, where, where there used to be substance, uh, is, is pretty striking. I mean, this is how I ended up coming to gold in the first place. Uh, but, you know, maybe I can just sort of tell you the rest of my history. And so yes, that, yeah, that would please. Illuminate. Yeah. So anyway, so I came here and I ended up going to kind of working my way through college and then working my way through business school. 
and then ended up in the investment business. And the first 13 years, uh, I spent on the investment side of an insurance company. So I, I have background um, in, in things like workouts and private placements and real assets um, and uh, also insurance and understanding how insurance works and, and the, the issues um, of what to look for and so forth. And then uh, in 98 uh, or by mid-90s, I got involved while working at that company in something called CDOs, collateralized debt obligations, of which, of course, no one had heard at that time. And when the company was sold in 98, uh, my then colleague became my partner, my business partner, and we bought from uh, from the company that purchased the company we worked for, the, uh, the CDO management business, and started in the CDO business. So basically, the, of the 30, whatever, five years that I've been investing, I guess uh, about 20 years or so was spent in credit and credit derivatives and, uh, you know, these new technologies, uh, some of which have eventually led me to what I'm doing now. And so, in OC, you know, we did very well through the, through the, uh, the you know, the distress cycle of, of, of four or three through five, I guess, buying distressed CDO tranches. Once we figured out what that technology was all about, we thought, of course, it was going to be dead. Uh, we didn't realize that Wall Street was going to pick it up and make it bigger than ever. And so we, st- we started seeing the next crisis coming in about 06 and raised fund f- funds for that uh, to take advantage of, of what we saw was the coming distress in this hyper-levered, uh, completely misunderstood, uh, difficult-to-evaluate space. And we also, of course, looked at subprime mortgages and, 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 and both credit and subprime mortgages. And that's when I, st- that's when I personally... Uh, became interested in gold because I, I, what I saw was going on with the with the financial system and the and the derivatives and the role of the derivatives in the financial system, and also understanding how insurance works and seeing how uh, AIG and, and and some other companies were selling this protection essentially for nothing against potentially catastrophic risks just because they didn't think this was ever going to happen. Um, it made it look like something was not quite. Right. And, and so I, I started on a personal level preparing and, you know, as a business positioning for that. And of course, that that paid off. I mean, it was a painful way, but it paid off very well in, in 08, 09. And then we were able to take advantage again of the of the distressed opportunities. But by about 2011, I, I've kind of felt that um, the credit story has played itself out. Of course, it continued to get even more ridiculous, not that there was any value <laughs> in the last five or six years. Um, but I started slowly transitioning into something else, and and and, and my thesis there, my just, it wasn't about gold really. It was mostly looking for how do I take a portion of my savings or everything that I've accumulated over the years, and put it in some form that would a be liquid, and b uh, independent from the financial system and financial infrastructure and 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 cyber immune because of all the uh, you know, digitization and the digital threats. And so that's, that's how I ended up uh, becoming interested and then involved in gold when I also realized that it's not that easy for people to actually buy it, sell it, transport it. Uh, and so it was more personal interest that led me to it or, or a lack of solutions for myself that led me to it than anything else. So that's like in three minutes or whatever, five minutes, the background. Yeah, no, uh, perfect. Um, and so you were looking for basically an insurance policy against risk in financial assets. Is that it? And, and so you came across gold. Right. I mean, you know, when people say insurance policy, I mean, most people buy insurance by, you know, they, they see the ad in the paper and says, call Geico and we'll save you 15% or more. And so they call and, and they buy this policy. They don't really know what it says. Uh, and m- the vast majority of the people, at least in my experience, have never read their insurance policy. So, right. so they don't really know what's covered, right? <laughs> and uh, y- they find out what's covered is when, you know, when the actual event occurs, then they go into the policy. Then sometimes it, it turns out that it just so happens that that particular thing was not covered. So, so when you understand insurance, I mean, you really have to understand what, what risks you're trying to insure and whether whatever it is you're doing or however it is you're doing what you're doing actually protects against those risks. Yeah. Um, well, that's what I want to ask you about. It's, it's funny to me that you bring up Geico because we just had the Berkshire Hathaway um, 
you know, annual meeting and, you know, what is it, 40, 50,000 people flock to listen to Warren Buffett talk about, you know, these businesses and others. But, you know, he's famously, you know, while he's a very successful in the insurance business, he very famously said, you know, he doesn't see gold as that uh, insurance policy. What, what in your view, um, makes gold a necessary uh, part of a a, a diversified portfolio, and what what is it specifically that makes it uh, valuable as an insurance policy? Well, I mean, first of all, let let's just step back and, and and take a look at what what you know you can't you can't come up with the idea of an insurance without understanding what the risk is. I mean, it's like uh, the solution you cannot be cannot be discussed without discussing the problem, right? Because the the solution is informed by the problem, not the other way around. So everybody's very focused on gold, and they either say they don't understand gold or they don't believe in gold. But to me, it's, this discussion is completely not about gold at all. It's really about what, what are the risks. Uh, and if you don't understand the risks, then you start thinking as to what are the ways to ameliorate those risks. And that's when you stumble on something like gold. So I, so, so I think that any discussion of gold, at least from the way I'm looking at it, yes, of course, there are people who are emotionally attached to it. There are people who are called gold bugs who have, you know, philosophical, uh, you know, strong philosophical ideas about how gold should be money and legal tender laws and all things like that. But that, that's not what this is about for me. I mean, yes, yeah, some of that makes sense. Some of it doesn't make sense. But what does what what the way I got there is by looking at the financial system by the at the risks of the financial assets, uh, and understanding sort of what the potential outcomes could be, and only then asking, okay, so if there were a solution, what would it look like? And then you would have to say, without you know, if you say the risks are the fact that all financial assets are digitized. Uh, there are no, you know, you, you don't have real certificates. Uh, we saw what happened in 2008. There were only three failures of uh, major financial institutions that were not bailed out. And that was Lehman Brothers, uh, Refco, and uh, MF Global. Uh, these were all three broker dealers, uh, meaning that they uh, held securities in custody for people. Now, holding securities in custody is not supposed to be a risky activity. So when you have your securities in somebody's custody, uh, you're not expecting to lose those securities if something even happened to the institution that holds it, because all they're doing is they're holding it for you. Well, that wasn't true. Uh, People lost money uh, in all three of those cases just from custodial assets, because the custodial assets were digitally held. They're held in the street name. Uh, they were being used for what's called rehypothecation, means they were lent out and then re-lent out further to other parties. And when collapse happened, there wasn't enough for everybody to go around. So, I mean, that's one of the risks. Uh, and then, of course, you step back and you say, well, you know, we've been in a very specific time frame over the past 30, 40 years when interest rates have gone from, I don't know, what, 20% or something, 19 18% down to virtually zero. They're now getting off the floor, but they're still, by historical standards, almost uh, close to 5,000-year lows. And as you very well know, uh, you know, the way all financial assets or all cash flow-producing assets that Warren Buffett likes so much are evaluated uh, are by using discount rate and, and present value formula, which... You know the main put into which is is a discount rate, which is an interest, which is based off of interest rates. So if the interest rates are near five thousand year lows, just mechanically, just through the way valuations are done, means that the asset values for financial assets are near five thousand year highs. So why would that be a good idea to buy something at five thousand year highs? I mean, is that how you make money, or is it buy low, sell high, or it feels like the other way around, right? So, so that's the that's just one dimension of of thinking, and then of course you have to say if you look at the economy over the past thirty five years, and you say well yes everything the markets have gone up quite a bit, but the incomes in real terms for the vast majority of the people have not, um, and I saw recently I don't know if you saw that chart of Deutsche Bank uh, showing the percentage of uh, votes cast across major uh, economies for populist uh, politicians and populist parties. Uh, 
that index is back to the level where we last saw in the 1930s, in the 1940s. Uh, clearly a period of tremendous economic uh, distress, which we are not visibly experiencing right now. But clearly for a lot of people, things are not the way they seem for maybe a lot of other people that don't see the problem. Um, and so there, so there's a political dimension to what's going on. There's a, there's a sovereign dimension to what's going on because the United States is borrowing at a rate of, I don't know what, we're about to borrow another trillion dollars or something like that. We've doubled the debts. Uh, everybody knows about the debt problem, right? But they don't think it's a problem because it's been going on for so long. Uh, and they, so they think it'll go on forever. So, uh, so I agree. There's no debt problem. There's a debt interest problem because you have to service the debt. And you can't service it with accounting entries. I mean, you actually have to pay the coupons. And that's true for corporate debt as well, which, by the way, is also at an all-time high. Um, and with the rates going up, I mean, you see that. I mean, we can just go on and on. But, I mean, please yeah. stop me here because yeah, – No, no. I, I, I think you made a point in something else that I was uh, – one of your other presentations that, you know, during that era of declining interest rates, you know, you can add more debt and it doesn't cost you anymore because the interest rates are coming down. But now that that dynamic is over, you know, adding more debt becomes more costly. And so that's where you have a uh, – an inflection point where, where things can become problematic. I think the, you're absolutely right. The, I, I think the inflection point was passed around 2011. Uh, but because rates are so low, uh, I mean, you just, you just people don't need to do any heavy math. If you just arithmetic, you just, it's arithmetic. You just think about it and you say, well, if I can make the same monthly payments and owe twice or three or four times as much money, what difference does it make how much money I owe as long as I can pay the monthly payments, and as long as the maturity of the debt, I don't have to repay this debt, either for a very, very long period of time, or I'm confident enough that I can refinance this debt uh, at, you know, at any time at, at, a, at a reasonable rate. So if you think of it in, in those terms, you know, you know, people don't see the problem. But in 2011, what happened was we were paying in 2011 as little uh, in interest debt service. By we, I mean the federal government. Um, but United States, uh, as, as the U.S. was paying in 1998 with one-third the debt. So three times the debt, the same amount of interest payments. But if you fast forward to 2017 fiscal year, the U.S. paid the highest ever uh, interest uh, expense on obviously the highest ever debt, but at the lowest ever rate, two and a quarter, I think, or less than two and a quarter on average, was the debt service rate on the debt. So, and now the rates are going up. So the, 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 the budget, uh, which already spends 30% of income tax collections on debt service, uh, it's, I feel like it's almost like a coiled spring because you could, you could have really a real acceleration of, of debt service, and then which, which means that the government has to borrow even more money than it's borrowing just to pay the interest. And we're already cut the taxes and, you know, uh, did whatever yeah, we did this, in the past. Yeah, go ahead. Right. No, I, I was just going to say, you know, we, yeah, we cut taxes. And so now um, what was the first quarter, uh, you know, Treasury sales were the, the largest on, on record to try and, you know, fill that rising budget gap, even as, um, you know, interest rates are rising. You know, to me, it's it's a very interesting time. Uh, also, I, I interviewed uh, Bill White, who was the chief economist oh, for sure. the BIS, um, and he brought up a very interesting point to me. He <clears> said that, you know, basically over the last 35 plus years, the, the Federal Reserve has been able to pursue kind of whatever monetary policy they want because the fiscal authorities haven't been too out of control. <laughs> and uh, But now we have one of the long, longest economic expansions on record, and the fiscal authorities are getting extremely aggressive. And there's a there's a paper I think it's called some uh, unpleasant monetary arithmetic that uh, that Bill uh, turned me on to, and basically it points out that you know the the federal or the the central bank can essentially afford to pursue uh, aggressive policies so long as the fiscal authorities don't 
do the same. But as soon as uh, fiscal policy starts to overpower monetary policy, it puts the it, it, you can really stoke inflation, especially when you're dealing with a with a uh, a government that has a lot of debt. And I think that's exactly the scenario that we're looking at right now, where the uh, you know the the Federal Reserve has been able to pursue incredibly easy you know uh, stimulus uh, because the the federal government has not been doing too much, but now we get these tax cuts and these other things going on with a 3.9% unemployment rate, you're going to get, I think we're starting to see some real inflationary tendencies taking off and that's going to put the federal reserve in a, in a, in a bind. Um, but it also said, you know, for me, it answers the question, you know, why should, you know, financial assets come down in value over the next 10 years, especially relative to real assets. Because, you know, you look at that that chart that I think we've all seen and, and real assets, especially gold, you know, are, are cheaper relative to financial assets than almost any time in history. And uh, that dynamic has come about from falling interest rates, like you pointed out. You lower discount rates and financial assets all go up. Um, it's made, you know, real assets less less attractive. Um what what are your thoughts on i mean uh, the, the the this i guess a new inflationary impulse and uh you know the the bull case for for gold over the next 10 years well the my case for gold well two two things one one i agree with with pretty much everything you're saying i would add to what you're saying the demographic uh, uh situation we have uh, 10,000 people every day turning uh 65 baby boomers um uh, Social Security system until now has been cash flow positive, which means that the uh, FICA and payroll taxes that it collects were enough to cover uh, the outflows for pensions. I think like in the next 12 to 18 months, um, the Social Security is going to go cash flow negative, which means that it will have to pay out more than it takes in. Now, the Social Security Trust Fund is funded with U.S. Treasuries. So that means that the trust fund is going to have to start selling down some of these treasuries uh, in order to pay uh, the pensions, which is a version of a run on the bank, right, where where the all of a sudden the cash yeah. needs yeah the cash needs would exceed uh, the receipts now you have to start liquidating uh, uh, the capital so what does it mean selling treasuries it means it means that the uh, the government needs to borrow even more money just from that to because it has to refinance this debt that's being that's all of a sudden being tendered or somebody has to buy it or the government needs to refinance it so I, I would add I would add that to that I also tend to I took a little bit of an agnostic view on that, and the reason I do that is because from a risk management standpoint, uh, everybody's very focused in this sort of in our financialized world on the next best on the next trade, on the next way, you know, like where the prices are going. I don't necessarily think of gold or bull market and gold in terms of its price. I think of it in terms of its purchasing, relative purchasing power. Because, you know, people say gold is going to 10,000, gold is going to whatever, some number. Uh, what do they really, I mean, what, what does the world look like? I mean, is what does $10,000 buy in that environment necessarily? Then some people say, well, but if there's a deflation, then gold's no good because then you should have the dollars. Okay, so in 1930s, uh, that's what happened. The dollar, of course, the dollar was devalued at that point, so there was a moment when you would do well with the dollars. There was a moment when you would do well with gold. But even aside from that, uh, when when the President Roosevelt took over, I mean, they closed, I forgot how many banks, like four some thousand banks were put on a, on a bank holiday. And when the holiday ended a week later, less than half of the banks reopened. And the less, basically the rest of them went bust. Uh, so when people say that the dollar is going to be, the purchasing power of the dollar is going to rise in a deflation, arises in the deflation, well, that's not necessarily your dollars because your dollars may be in a bank that doesn't, that doesn't reopen or, or because the government decides to devalue the dollars if they can't generate the inflation that this inflationary impulse that you and I just were talking about actually pans out. What if it doesn't pan out? So 
I'm, I view I view the 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 wealth preservation here at this moment is by assessing the risk and not trying to necessarily bet on any particular outcome, but just realizing that financial assets, the purchasing power of financial assets, has to deflate relative to real assets because they have been overproduced. It's just like it's 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 like in industry, you know, when you overproduce inventory, it has to be liquidated. But liquidation of inventory, if it's financial assets, essentially destroys savings, destroys pension funds, destroys everybody who accumulated some wealth or some savings or whatever. And nobody wants to think about that or nobody wants to contemplate that. But that's essentially, you can call it what it can come about in many ways. But the problem is that if you lose either access to your assets or uh, purchasing power of these assets, then the question is, so what is what stands a better chance to preserve purchasing power relative to other things? And you can name a whole lot of real assets that can do that. The problem is none of them are either liquid or feasible to own. I mean, you can say, you know, oil will always be oil and useful. But how do you store oil? I mean, oil is, what is it, $60 a barrel. A barrel is a 150-gallon drum. And there are 27 <laughs> different grades of oil. I, you know, and it's toxic, by the way. You know, it's very corrosive. So how yeah. do you own that? You know, and, and you look at copper. You know, I mean, copper is cheap. You need tons and tons and tons of copper. And, of course, you can go to land or you can go to other things. But none of that stuff is liquid then or movable. There's a reason why for 2,000 years or 2,500 years, people have come to gold as a reserve asset. There's a reason why 10% of central bank reserves are in gold. And there's a good reason. There are good reasons why Chinese and the Russians are buying gold hand over fist. You know, I just saw a statistic today that over the past, uh, well, since 2009, so over the past nine years, as, as the central banks have been buying gold that they have sold back, you know, 60% of that is purchased by Russia. Uh, because Russia is seeking independence, it feels under threat. Uh, and I'm not passing any judgment about you know who's right, who's wrong in that fight. I'm just making a factual observation that Russia is under threat uh, of financial um, warfare, or is having financial warfare conducted against it, uh, financial repression. By being cut out, of, you know, being threatened to cut out of SWIFT by sanctions on, on Russian assets and things like that. And so it feels vulnerable. So what is it looking for? Why is it buying gold? That kind of brings us full circle to what, to what you said. So what do I see in gold? There are three things yeah. that I see in gold. One is, one is it's scarce. It's genuinely scarce. It's like you and I talked about the we started recording, you know, some of the cryptocurrencies. I mean, yes, some individual cryptocurrencies may be scarce, but there's no scarcity of cryptocurrencies in general. Uh, they can be replicated, uh, you know, without limit. Uh, and even certain types can fork many, many ways and, and be replicated. Gold cannot be printed or replicated. It's, it's, a, it's, it's something that's genuinely scarce and getting scarcer. Um, it's it's permanent you know we don't know i mean objectively even the even the people who are complete uh, head over heels with uh, crypto assets and and i'm not again i'm not passing judgment i'm just making a factual observation there is no basis that anybody has today fundamentally to suggest that 20 years from now any of the crypto assets are going to be a around be valuable or which one will be around and which one will be valuable or 10 years from now or 5 years from now we just don't know yet. It's too early to say. I think gold, given the 2,000-whatever-year history, I think if you have to make some educated guess, I would say that that's, that's a, it's a good guess that it's still going to be around. Uh, well, we know it's going to be around, uh, whether it's going to be valuable or not, but it's definitely going to be around. And the final thing is independence. So it's scarcity, it's, it's permanence or, or resilience, and, and the last one is independence. Gold is genuinely independent from everything. I mean, if you, depending, of course, how you own it in different ways, depending on the quantities and so forth. But, you know, a piece of gold is completely, does not rely on anything and anyone. And if I give you a gold coin or you give me a gold coin, I mean, that's the end of the transaction. Uh, there's no, nobody, no blockchain needs to go through a block and mine the block to prove what you and I just did. 
Neither, neither does there need to be a record of this uh, for posterity to be researched, you know, 10 years from now or five years from now or at any time. Um, so, so in that sense, gold is unique. It is the only financial asset. Uh, it is the only financial. I've, I've, done, I've done a lot of search for alternatives. It is the only financial asset that is universally liquid and completely independent from financial systems, uh, markets, uh, cyber networks, cyber immune, completely cyber immune, uh, and, and liquid and feasible to own. So, so when you add those qualities together, uh, it, it, it's very interesting in certain circumstances, like we have now. Right. And, yeah, and to, and to me, that's how you define a store of value. That's exactly those, those three things, the scarcity, permanence, independence. And it's also what, to me, um, you know, uh, just is makes it obvious that the cryptocurrencies aren't a store of value. And I'm, I'll just I'm, I'm fine saying that. <laughs> Even though right. the the, uh, the crypto guys might might uh, want to pay me back for that, but um, <clears throat> I, I want to also um, you make a great point. I think a lot of people don't understand this about gold. Is that anything else you put your money in is going to be somebody else's liability? Almost anything else, you know, besides gold. And so, you know, I think that's that's probably how you came to gold. And, and from just hearing you talk about it, you know, you, you look at what are the risks? What are the counterparty risks in anything that I own? I mean, cash in the bank is going to be either a liability of the bank or if it's FDIC insured, it's going to be a liability of the federal government. So you got to think about, you know, all these different things that people think of as safe ways to, to, to store their money. Um, all have risks um, that are that are completely separate and, and different from owning gold. Um, what are your What are your thoughts there on on that that liability issue? Well, I mean, the, there's no question. I mean, gold is no one's liability. But but you know, again, we so neither is a piece of copper. So so what we're getting into is you have to once you've decided that whatever the insurance policy would, would address the risks that we you, you, that we're discussing here, which is the purchasing power of financial assets, ability to meet the obligations uh, that were that has been taken over the past 35, 40 years, you know, then you have to start looking and saying, okay, so there are a number of assets that work, but which of them are feasible? You know what? What what is feasible? And again, it's for the Western mind. It, this is all like a new new puzzle. Uh, but for Asian mind, it isn't, uh, and it hasn't been a puzzle for. I mean, the, the mere fact that we're discussing it, that the Warren Buffett is panning gold, and we're discussing, we have to prove that this is something of value or of interest. After the fact that it's been so for the entire history of human civilization, it's it's almost funny. I mean, it's it's almost just speaks to the level of simulacra uh, of the world, which is, which is sort of a uh, reflection of the reality of the world that, in which we live, where things that are unreal are considered real, things that are untrustworthy are considered trustworthy. I'll, I'll give you an ex- a specific example. You know, banks, for example, the major too-big-to-fail banks, I don't remember the exact numbers, but they have paid like 200, 150 billion, 200 billion of fines after the, the global financial crisis, uh, for crimes, I mean, I wouldn't call them crimes against humanity, literally, but crimes against financial humanity, let's put it this way. Money laundering, trading against clients, breach of trust, and it continues. I mean, uh, Wells Fargo was just outed last year for what I think would be a fraud on a massive scale, opening accounts, uh, using people's social security numbers to fraudulently open accounts to create fees and do it on a nationwide scale across a you know global organization like that. And in none of these situations, no one has gone to jail. So I think the question people should ask themselves, I mean, is, is institutional trust which for some reason continues to exist, despite ample evidence that maybe it shouldn't. And I would add to that areas in which you, you, you've spoken many times about Facebook and Google and, and uh, even Twitter. I mean, and the information that's being collected and, and the, uh, the breaches of privacy and the, and the stories. Like, 
I mean, to the point where my wife, I have tweeted about it. My wife was talking to a girlfriend on the phone and, and uh, within seconds, uh, the subject, uh, one thing that they mentioned in the conversation showed up on, on, on a uh, Instagram feed, an ad showed up like, yeah. was it list, somebody was listening on the phone? I mean, I've, I've been getting quotes for roofing at my, at my uh, you know, my summer home. I just, I, I'm flooded with, with, uh, with roofing ads. How do they know? I mean, I, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and I, and I think that all of these things are interrelated. The, you know, the popularity of Bitcoin and this backlash against big tech, what we're seeing going on politically, um, it, it's a, it's a, there's a lot of common themes here, you know, where people are tired of, you know, uh, extreme authoritarian powers, you know, on the part of whatever it's, you know, big tech or it's, you know, politicians that don't listen to them and, you know, are beholden to corporations. And, um, you know, so I, I want to come back to the, you know, where we where we started out and 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 you saying that this is kind of a new to new to the West, to Western way of thinking, because for the last I don't know, 50, 60, 70 years, we haven't really seen much turmoil on a, on a political level. And we've certainly seen the markets just go one direction for the last 35 years. And people have a natural tendency to just extrapolate these things indefinitely into the future. But we're seeing a lot of signs that people are tired. And I think in, in a recent um, interview that you gave, um, you brought up a couple of interesting Things you know related to this, where I think you were talking about um, Vladimir Lenin had a couple of things uh, that he looked for, you know, that would that were required for social unrest or you know so social um, you know revolution. Yeah, yeah. Now, just to make a disclosure, you know, whatever people, I mean, he was a he was clearly a cannibal and and a, and a horrible. Uh, figure in history but but whatever you want to say about him politically or ethically or morally he was an expert in regime change uh a successful practitioner as well and so so uh, therefore you know what his writings and his ideas should be should be studied for for uh for the you know for the insights and what he said was the way he defined a revolutionary situation which is a preconditions for regime change is uh as Three things. Initially, he posed two, and then he added the third. So one was that the uh, the common people, or however you want to call it, proletariat or working people, uh, are no longer willing to abide by the status quo. So they so they they want change. We're seeing symptoms of that in uh, the 2016 elections. We're seeing symptoms of that in the rise of the populist parties. The, what I mentioned to you, the uh, the Deutsche Bank index. The second condition was that um, the ruling classes lose ability uh, to, or I should say, the tools, political and economic tools that the ruling classes have been using to manage the economy and the political processes stop being effective. I think we're seeing that as well. I mean, we're seeing that with central banking policies. We're seeing that with the inability to deliver real growth, despite multi-trillion dollar liquidity injections. Um, the third uh, was that the, uh, the dispossessed or whatever, the, the aggrieved part of the population, which no longer abides by uh, or doesn't want to continue, uh, becomes organized. That we have not seen yet. Uh, but I think we're, we may see that in the next elections. Uh, we saw the start of that in the fact that uh, neither uh, candidate of the major uh, political parties has gotten much traction. I mean, of course, you know, Hillary Clinton was nominated, but we now know that uh, Bernie Sanders, who got a trem tremendous amount of uh, traction in, in the primaries, was, was actively sabotaged or his campaign was actively sabotaged by the Democratic National Campaign Committee. And so... So we don't know what the real outcome there would be. So the impulses that I see are definitely there. The other thing that, that the, the big argument that even my wife sometimes you know, throws at me, it's like, well, you keep saying this stuff, but you know everything looks fine. I mean, look, uh, people in the restaurants and everything's great and the companies are making profits. And how, you know, what are you talking about? How can this all be so bad if it's, if it's all so good, if it looks so good? 
And what I think uh, the answer to that is that if you step back and you just imagine for a minute how the last 35 years would have looked like uh, in terms of uh, the uh, supply and demand for goods and services across the world without creation of these 200 plus trillion dollars of debt that got created in the past 35 years, uh, I would say that you have to have to say that the world economically would be a much smaller place, that there would be less demand and there would be less supply. So if we're discussing the, the potential outcome, or not the potential, the inevitable outcome of this debt binge, that the debts will, you know, it's like with everything, there's a restructuring at the end of every binge. It's not Armageddon, and that's a big mistake that people make. They think, and this is where I can tell them having survived, uh, you know, expropriation and, and uh, my family having survived the siege of Leningrad and World War I and World War II and, uh, you know, Yes, horrible, but life goes on, and, and financial debacle is not decidedly Armageddon. It just isn't. happens every 100 years or so, pretty much everywhere. Uh, and it's happened in the last 30 years across the entire Eastern Europe, Latin America, multiple places. Argentina is back there now. Uh, Venezuela is there now. Uh, Brazil is having issues. Uh, you know, Israel has gone through hyperinflation. Uh, Zimbabwe famously did. None of these places have life has ended there. You know, uh, people continue to have children and, and uh, families and, yes, difficult times, but it's not Armageddon. And so um, that's why history is cyclical. People, people uh, don't learn from history. They learn from they, they look at their personal experience. And so they think that it's going to continue the way it is. And then they get surprised. I mean, I'm almost uh, I almost feel like it's public like you or, or people who are telling people that things may go the wrong way. It's, it's a way of public service. I mean, because everybody can afford for nothing wrong to go to happen. I mean, but who can afford for things to really go wrong? I mean, who's prepared? The culture of preparedness is gone. I mean, we used to have scouts. I mean, the scouts are still around. But, I mean, the whole concept of being prepared for the unexpected. Uh, and, you know, I like I, my, one of my favorite quotes is by Pericles from... Uh, uh, 500 years before, you know, uh, before Christ, I mean, this is 2,500 years ago, who said uh, uh, it's not about predicting the future, it's about being prepared for it. So, so th- I mean, that I think is, 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 what, is what people should be thinking about, not trying to say this is going to happen and therefore I'll be fine or that's going to happen. You should be prepared for whatever happens. And that's where the resiliency comes from. That's where the anti-fragility comes from. That's where real assets versus financial assets, non-digital versus digital, you know, things that are lasting, things that are, that are uh, resilient to, to change and, and to adversity. Yeah. I, I don't see any, anything wrong with this message. No, I, I don't either. Very, it's, uh, it's funny how we feel like we have to qualify, qualify it somehow because you know, people think, oh, you're just a, you know, a doomsayer or whatever. And, you know, I think I really, really appreciate you saying you know, you're not, we're not talking about Armageddon. We're, we're talking about possibilities and we're talking about change. And change, you know, if you've, anybody – has read any history is the only thing you can count on, <laughs> right? Is things, nothing, nothing goes on forever. Things change. And so it's just a matter of looking at these trends and seeing what, what changes are these trends pointing towards? And I really do think your, your uh, experience, you know, firsthand in the Soviet Union is, is uh, interesting. For today, because you've you've seen some some change, and most people, like like you you point out, who have only known you know the United States over the last fifty years, don't know what real change looks like. And um, and I'm not saying you know there's going to be some massive change, but I think it's worth looking at these trends and what are the what are the possibilities going forward because these things aren't sustainable um you know you talk about the the great debt super cycle and you know ray dalio has said in the last couple of years you know this is the end of the great debt super cycle so it's a matter of looking at what does that mean what does that mean for markets what does that mean for us as a society and it's all interrelated so i i don't really i mean it have um any qualms about bringing this up i think these are important discussions and it's a shame that more people aren't ha- having them 
Um, but I, I do want to. Do- you know, I, can I interrupt you? I, I, I had lunch with 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 a, with a good friend who who made a very. Uh, uh, his name is Bill Kennedy. He's the chief investment officer of, of uh, Field Point Private Bank. Uh, he had a very insightful comment that I think. I mean, of course, we all know that, but he phrased it in a way that I think really brings it home. Media make money by overhyping bad news. You know, if it bleeds, it leads, right? That's how media has made have made money forever. Newspapers, MSNBC, Fox, all of them. Financial media make money by overhyping good news or the positives. It's not cool to be negative on CNBC. Because financial media is in the business of helping securities firms that fund it sell securities. So it's all positive, positive, positive. So, so when pe- people are used to bad news in the normal uh, uh, newspapers and, and, and TV and radio, but when it comes to financial matters, they, for some reason, see negative news as some sort of, um, as a negative, you know, as, as abnormal, because that's what they're used to. Um, and, you know, it's not about good news or bad news. It's about what's the real, I mean, what's the reality right. here? It's I mean, such a great point. Do, how right? The, I mean, the psychology want... is totally reversed as soon as you start talking about money. I mean, I think, you know, you just look at how people react when, when anything else in their lives, you know, goes on sale, they get excited and go buy more. When it goes on sale in the markets, they freak out, right? And so it's kind of the same thing. And, and uh, you know, it's a great point too. Look at the incentives. Look at the incentives. It's always, uh, the, you know, an important thing to do when you're looking at anything. You look at the incentives behind most financial TV and the incentive is, yes, selling products. And so... Selling products. But, you know, it's also important to look at what happened in the past 30 years with disincentives, which are as important as incentives. I mean, it used to be that uh, managers, I mean, the companies at Goldman Sachs were partnerships. You know, we're partners. We're personally responsible for the capital that they committed. I mean, we've this financialization of industry across the board and the fact that, um, you know, management is compensated through stock options, which, by the way, is a policy decision. I mean, this was a policy decision. In the early 90s, it was the Clinton administration that, um, uh, uh, that passed a rule that, that disallowed uh, deductions over a million dollars for executive compensation uh, unless it was incentive compensation. So from now on, you know, all the money is made in the stock market. So, so the managers are not necessarily interested in the owners of the companies who want to grow profits over an extended period of time in a robust, you know, responsible manner. They need to make money now, so they want to juice up the stock price in the next 20 months or 12 months or 18 months, which is completely counterintuitive to what you would do or anybody would do if they were running their own hot dog cart. Or, yeah, especially or anything, when these companies you know? uh, borrow a ton of money to buy back the stock so that they so that the uh, executives have somebody to sell to <laughs> right <laughs> well and so and you know what and 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 here's a thought on that so we started earlier saying that the federal government uh, you know, is paying 30% of income taxes right now in interest expense well i was talking to Luke Groman who you probably know uh, who runs uh, forest for the trees uh, consultancy and he made it, and he sent me some charts actually he made a great point that there's since that Clinton rule about the executive compensation, there's a tremendous correlation between income tax collections and the stock market moves up and down. And 5% of taxpayers, 5% of taxpayers pay over 60% of taxes. That is something to think about. So if 5% of taxpayers pay, so if you're thinking of a business and you're saying that 5% of its customers bring 60% of the revenues, would you think of that business as robust in terms of its ability to withstand adversity for a small group of its customers? No. 5%? No. So where do these people get it? Why are they paying all these taxes, these 5%? Well, they're getting it from the stock market. They're getting it from the capital gains. So, so everything is hinged. So it's all, it's basically a hugely levered, uh, financial pyramid scheme. I, I'm not using this word as a criminal enterprise pyramid scheme. It's just by its nature and by its dynamic, it's similar to that because it just purely relies on the next guy taking you out, which is the biggest argument that Buffett and Munger have against gold. 
is that it doesn't produce anything. It, it takes, it counts on somebody else taking you out. Well, guess what? At these prices, most of these securities are in the same boat. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, I mean, that, that, you that, know, that, ex, you know, explains a lot. I think, you know, Luke's thesis there, uh, because there was an interview, um, if you've seen the movie, um, <clears throat> Money for Nothing, which is fantastic about the, 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 the crisis and the Federal Reserve's role in it. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, Janet Yellen yep. gave an interview um, before she became Fed chair, well before, um, that wasn't used in, in, the, in the movie. But she basically goes on to say, this is maybe in the uh, – uh, right after the financial crisis. And she said, uh, we need to move from a society dependent on financial bubbles to stimulate our economy to something more sustainable. And so it's clear that you know she understood before she became Fed chair the risks of trying to create this wealth effect and boost you know uh, asset values to try and uh, sustain the economy. But you know, when you look at okay, what if we don't do this? What if we don't um, create a wealth effect? You know, then the pension situations are obvious. But then you know, the the federal government is in a very similar situation as to to the the pensions. So you know, it, it might be that that you're absolutely right, and and that Luke's absolutely onto something. That you know, this is something we can't not pursue without creating a big financial debacle. Um, I don't think we can. I think, you know, just on the positive note to all this, the largest fortunes have been created uh, throughout history during the largest debacles, right? Because the biggest opportunities, when, when the economy is, is, like, look at what's going on in the economy now. Essentially, this financialization has given uh, tremendous power to the largest uh, uh, incumbents, right? Who because because they can issue debt most cheaply. They have the best access to the markets. They have the best legal protection against uh, uh, you know litigation. So none of the banks have essentially they paid off portion of their profits and fines, but they actually were not in any way uh, inconvenienced uh, or put in. Nobody was went to jail or no bank was closed on account of the, the depravities that they have perpetrated on the on, on the population. But but. When there's a disruption, uh, which, if you read history, is, is just happens every, whatever, 100 years or so, because humans are the same, because humans make the same mistakes over and over again, they forget and they, you know, they, they do it again. And we're doing it again, just like all the previous generations before us did it. Those are the moments of the highest opportunity for the smaller people that, 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 that have purchasing power that other people don't have. So, you know, in the middle of the Great Depression in New York, you could buy office buildings for $10,000. I know it was a lot of money, $10,000 then, but it's, it's, it's incomparable to what these buildings were really worth. And either people didn't have the $10,000 or they were afraid to, uh, to invest $10,000. But great fortunes were made then uh, by buying those assets at that time. So all I'm saying is that people should be try not to be emotional, but try to be practical about it and say, if I can't afford uh, to be wrong about everything being right, uh, what can I do about this? And by the way, if I do, if I do this, what, you know, what, what do I get to lose and what do I get to gain? And what you have to gain is you have to, you, you potentially can participate in the greatest, you know, fire sale of assets, uh, almost ever given the level of leverage and technology that we've brought to bear here uh, where you'd be, you know, you wouldn't be competing with too many people uh, for buying things. And so how can that be a bad thing? Yeah. And, and I think, you know, it's, you make a, a really good point about the attitude towards, towards a lot of these things, towards financial assets, towards gold. And from a very long-term, you know, sentiment, perspective you just look at what you know today passive investing has become so popular that it's you know more than half the assets or roughly half the assets in the stock market are now indexed and this is entirely predicated upon uh, the last 50 years essentially repeating for another 50 years <laughs> and i think i think people right. don't understand that you're betting on there being no change, uh, and and you're also betting on um, you know um, maybe the last 35 years repeating. And how is that going to happen when interest rates have come down from you know 14 percent to to zero percent? How is that how's that going to repeat? 
It's not going to repeat. It's not going to happen. The next 35 years are going to be different. It doesn't mean that, you know, life is not going to be happy eventually. But we have to go through a restructuring. We have to restructure the balance sheet. Everybody's looking at an income statement. But there's a balance sheet. The balance sheet is messed up. And it will be restructured, either through deflation or through inflation or devaluation. I mean, there are many different ways to restructure the balance sheet. But value will be destroyed of financial assets and claims because every dollar of debt is somebody's asset. So if the debts cannot be repaid in real value, purchasing power, that means that the assets on the books are not worth whatever people say they're worth or think they're worth in real purchasing power either. So this is where gold, with its sort of unique properties, is simply a very effective uh, store of purchasing power that is not implicated uh, into the problems and the and is not correlated to the directly to the problems that we're discussing. And of course, we can do a whole discussion of gold of gold itself and how to own it. That could be an hour in itself. Now you bring this thing with with passive investing. I mean, has anybody considered, for example, that on the way down, it is usually the shorts who provide liquidity. Uh, because they have to close out their positions, so they're natural buyers. And because all the shorts have, well, except for Jim Chanis and a couple of others, have been run out of the market for over the past you know, five or six years because they've been losing money consistently as everything gone up, wh- what's the li- who is the liquidity provider on the way down? Yeah, I mean, it's it's like you said, it's short sellers and active investors who might start to see value, and those guys have had all their assets pulled Correct. too. Um, but yeah, you you mentioned um, you know that we could do a whole whole probably episode on on what's the best way to own gold. But you know, for for individual investors who are looking to diversify and or at least ensure. Well, you make the great point that most of American wealth is in financial assets, and so pretty much everybody should have some type of exposure to gold as an insurance policy. Um, how should just the average investor begin to do that? Uh, okay, gold is – that brings us into into all bigger discussion of – which we're not going into right now – of uh, IT money laundering and know your customer rules and uh, difficulties with cash. And the restrictions that have been put on the people's ability to uh, to transact in cash. Um, so I would say that amounts under you know amounts like fifty to a hundred thousand dollars or something like that. Um, for investors like that, I think the best way to go is is to buy uh, coins um, uh, in the most uh, ubiquitous form that exists, which is probably for Americans. It would be American eagles. Um, I would, you know, you would sort of, you, you have to think in terms of like how you would use that at the worst possible moment. Uh, and you want something that people are not looking at uh, and saying, well, I've never seen this before. So you want something that's ubiquitous and, 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 and common for the, for the territory where you are. So if you're in Canada, it's probably maple leaves. If you're in Australia, it's some Australian coins, uh, some local coins. I would also say that it makes sense to own silver coins. Because a gold coin, even today, like a, uh, a gold ounce coin, is $1,300 bill. Uh, well, it's not very efficient to buy things with $1,300 bills if, if you ever need to do that. So for that purpose, I think silver coins, which are roughly $20 a piece, make a lot more sense. So everybody should own some, some coins, uh, store them securely, as securely as you can, and don't tell anybody that you own them. Um, Midnight gardening probably doesn't make a lot of sense, but for smaller amounts that could be safely uh, and you know discreetly stored uh, close at hand, that does make sense. For larger amounts, because of the anti-money laundering laws and because of the regulations, uh, you, that you need more uh, organized solutions. I mean, so this is what this is why I, this is how I got into what I'm doing because I I, I couldn't find one for myself, and I created one. Uh, there are a number of solutions out there, but the the guiding principles of everything you do with this particular asset should be very simple. You don't plug in backup generators into the grid. We just don't. There's no area of human endeavor, engineering, military, science, any area except for finance, where backup systems are created and designed to rely on the primary system, which is what hedging is. So when you hedge with securities, everything has to, has to work, right? So systemic risk cannot be hedged within the system. 
And that's why you have to own gold in a way that is not correlated. And that's part of the issue with, with uh, crypto assets, because even though they are independent from the financial system, they're not independent from the grid and they're not independent from the Internet. And access to the Internet is controlled by several companies in the United States, actually. Uh, and as we know from, you know from China and from other countries, uh, uh, government has ability to prevent access to certain sites and certain things. So, so physicality of gold uh, to pres- is, 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 what, is, why you, is one of the reasons you have it. And so you should own it in a way that, that you know, preserves its value in that sense. Uh, so, yes, that, that's, what, that's what I would advise. But over $100,000, then there, there are other solutions that ought to be thought about. More, uh, you know, international diversification. Uh, c- compliance is important. Access to liquidity is important. Uh, and so forth. Right. And so, and then in terms of, you know, gold ETFs or something, they're obviously a liability of the ETF provider. And so that not doesn't, you know, it doesn't make them an effective hedge in, in that regard. Now, yeah, and not even that. I mean, if you, if you look at an ETF chart and you see how ETF is organized, <coughs> the, the liquidity providers, even if the gold is there, and let's assume everything's above board, but the liquidity providers of the ETFs are the too big to fail banks. So you're you're going back into the system which you're trying to protect from against. Right. Uh, furthermore, you have cold electronic shares that are in DTC, which is digital, uh, you know, custodian system, uh, which are in digital registration that are held in street name by the broker dealer where you have your account. Uh, people are shorting some of these securities, so they're borrowing them. So you potentially have Lehman type situation where enough not enough securities to go around. I mean, it's. It, to me, it doesn't make sense. It makes great sense if you're just speculating in gold. Yeah, you're just looking for exposure to price. That's fine, but it's not a safe haven. Yeah, well, I, I gotta. Have there been any um, books or you know papers or anything that have really been a, a major influence on your your thinking in any, in terms of any of this? Your process. Uh, it's really mostly personal experience. I mean, I just, I just happen to. I mean, no, of course, I, I read history and the history of bubbles and and understanding what happened before in the in the twentieth century. And you know, uh, people should read about Mississippi bubble, which, by the way, is just stunningly, stunningly similar <laughs> to what we're experiencing right now. There was QE. There was uh, there was uh, financial repression. There was buying back shares at inflated prices. I mean, there was everything there. Yeah. Uh, of course, that, that episode burned through in about three or four years. We have a much more sophisticated technology these days to let these things run longer. But it's my experience. I mean, it's the combination of understanding insurance, understanding credit derivatives and, and credit provisioning, uh, and having personal experience with political and financial repression and expropriation, and, and, <clears throat> and just... I, frankly, you know, if you overimpose common sense and all of that and look around, you'd say, I mean, just the numbers don't add up. Yeah. They just don't. Yeah. <laughs> it's simple as that. And people have faith that, yeah, they don't, but they, that somehow it's been going on and it'll continue. And, and think about your family. I mean, you know, most of us are responsible for other people. So those of, those of us who are responsible for children and, and, and wives and parents and whatever, you know, it's not just about us. It's, it's you're wrong. You know, you hurt you hurt people you love. You, I, I, this is not this is not a pitch to buy gold. This is simply a pitch to to open your eyes and step back and and, and form think for yourself. You know, Absolutely. look at the facts and think for yourself. This is what it's about. Yeah. Make your own decisions. Do the research. Read about it. Find internet is full of resources. Well, that's how I found you, and that's exactly why I wanted to bring you on the show, Simon, is because you do think uh, independently of of most of the other people and opinions, and especially this stuff you see on the mainstream, you know, financial TV. Um, We are almost out of time. I've noticed on your Twitter profile that you're a sailor, and uh, it made me think of uh, a quote. I, I can't remember if it was Thoreau or Emerson, and somebody asked him about contradicting himself. He said, yeah, I contradict myself, but I'm basically like a sailboat tacking from side to side, and I'm heading in the right direction generally, and I've always loved that metaphor. Um, are there, I mean, lessons from sailing and things that you, that you apply to your, your thinking about the financial markets? Absolutely. The most comfortable and the most uh, peaceful 
point of sale is when the wind is behind you, right? When you have the wind at your back, it's true in sailing as well as in life. <laughs> That's what the metaphor, you know, may the wind be, may the wind be behind right. you. Uh, the problem is this is, all, this is also happens to be the most dangerous point of sale because it, it, it's true. It's true because if, if you are lose sight of where you're going for just a minute uh, and veer in, in, in one or the other direction, uh, or if the wind shifts just a little bit behind you and you're going straight downwind, what can happen is what's called an accidental jibe, which is where the boom comes very violently and very quickly across from one side of the boat to another side of the boat. And the forces in that case are so powerful that a lot of boats get capsized and what's called dismasted, essentially lose the mast. So as sailing as in life, you know, when the wind is behind your back and you, you feel no threat and no pain, that is probably the most dangerous uh, or the most risky, actually, direction where you're going. You're, you're not noticing anything. And the, the other thing, of course, is if you're sailing with the wind, you're not feeling the full force of the wind because the way the physics works is you subtract your speed from the speed of the wind. So it's very calm. Uh, you feel like there is no wind where, in fact, there's, there could be quite a bit. Right. So I would suggest that I would suggest that just when you're the most comfortable uh, and just when you feel, uh, you know, the most uh, gentle breezes on you, that's when the boom comes across and hits you on the head. I mean, that's when you should be the most wary. That's right. that's when you should be the mo- that's when you should be the most right. careful. That's yeah. right. Exactly. Perfect. Uh, I appreciate that that metaphor. It's it's. I think it's very apt to the markets. Um, where can people uh, keep up with you and your views? Sure, I'm I'm fairly active on Twitter. I've I've taken uh, a, a like a few days sabbatical here because I almost feel like it's. Uh, you know, commenting on chronic condition, you know, there are good weeks, there are bad weeks, but it's all the directions clear. You just, you have to, you know, there's not always everything to say every day, but in any way, but I'm pretty active on Twitter. It's S underscore Mikhailovich uh, is my address on Twitter. Bullionreserve.com is the website uh, of Tokyo Bullion Reserve, and you can look up uh, my background. And then there, if you just Google my name on the internet, there you'd see some, uh, I did a TEDx talk where I, uh, in 16 minutes, explain a lot of what you and I talked about here. Not everything, but some of things. Um, and I periodically do interviews on Real Vision. So those who are subscribers there uh, can watch me there. I'm about to do another one. Uh, of course, can always reach out to me if you have any questions. Perfect. And that, that TEDx talk was was terrific. I, I sent that out to uh, my my email list and I'll put a link to that um, in the notes that I'm going to put up on the blog when this uh, podcast goes out. So thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time, Simon. I really appreciate it. No, thank you for having me. And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and charts related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.